Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. you want to make your way, if you have a Bible with you, you want to make your way to Isaiah chapter 1 would be a really good place for us to probably start at in Isaiah chapter 1. If you go to uh, the Psalms, the collection of the Psalms there in the middle part of your Bible and you go to the right, um, you'll get to Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. If you get to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel, you've gone too far. Um, So Isaiah um, 66 chapter is one of the considered one of the major prophets, um, and there's a lot that has to do with the person of Isaiah. We've been walking through on Wednesday nights both the famous and the infamous in Scripture, both men and women, character studies, things that we can learn, things that are positive, things that are negative, and every time we come to these these characters, we always have been asking the same three questions: Who were they? Why do we know them? And then what lessons do they teach us? So we realize that there's thousands of people that are mentioned in Scripture. Um, But there's some specific things about these individuals that um, give us a model. They give us an example. They show us how God um, interacts with them, how they interact with God, things about their testimony, things about their witness, things that you and I may look to in our current lives and say these are things that we want to keep in mind, not only in addition to the Word of God and uh, ordaining our lives, but also these examples that we have of men and women that have come before us and how um, they live before for God. So these three questions. The first one is more biographical, factual data about who the person is. What do we know about him? Kind of a, a trivia round, if you will. And the next question is, what sticks out? What about their life makes them worthy of you and I spending a night here in December in 2023, um, 3,000 years after this person Live. What makes them worthy of us spending our time talking about tonight? And then maybe what are some lessons that we can think about their lives that we can apply to our lives moving out of here tonight and even in tomorrow? So, the man of Isaiah. Last week we were looking at who? Anybody remember? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was last week. Told you that this week we'd be in Isaiah. Uh, this coming, this a week from tonight, we're not going to have our services because we're right in the middle between Christmas and New Year. But then when we come back in the New Year, there's several more that we're going to pick up and keep moving on. Um, so we'll, uh, I don't know exactly which one we're going to hit um, in the New Year, but we're going to continue. Um, there's several more that have been mentioned that they have said they would like to do. So, Isaiah tonight, what do we know about Isaiah? What, what do we know trivia-wise? Who was he? Mother, father, sister? His father is Amos. Okay, his father is Amos. Okay, Amos. What, what do we know? Do we know anything else about Amos besides that being his father? The book of Amos? Well, it's a different... It's a different so you have the book of Amos with an S. And then where you're at, I think, Hurley, in, in Isaiah 1.1, it's Amos with a Z. Right? Does everybody got the same thing? Okay. So it says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, we don't have anything else that I could find in Scripture that talks about who Amos is. Um, there's some extra biblical writings that talk about that the tradition is that Amos was a brother of a man by the name of Amaziah. Does Amaziah ring a bell to you at all? I'm waiting for Charles. He's my, he's the he's the gold he's the gold star student. Okay, so so Amaziah is was one of the kings of Judah. You go back to Second Kings chapter fourteen, you will see, and then Second Kings chapter twelve, you will see Amaziah when he ascends the throne there in Judah, and he rules there in the time of Second Kings fourteen. So Jewish tradition says the two were brothers. Now, does that mean that it's biblical? 
No. So am I saying that Amos was the brother of Amaziah? No. I'm just saying that there was writings out there because I don't want you to get later on and because I know that every one of you go home and spend five or six hours studying this kind of stuff and I don't want you to go home and think, well, Spence didn't tell us that. Boy, he's slipping. It's there. It's just I don't have a chapter and verse to support it, so I don't want to present it as being that is what the Bible says. But that is what tradition says, that Amos was a brother of Amaziah, which would then put Isaiah in the royal lineage. Does that make a difference on what's going to happen in the next 66 chapters? Absolutely not, but it's maybe just another wrinkle, maybe just another thing to think about. Alright, so Isaiah 1.1 says he is the son of Amos. Do we know what his mother's name was? I don't. I write it down. I do have a cheat sheet. Yes, ma'am. I can't remember my own children's names in order, so I got to have something. A short pencil is better than a long memory. So, anybody know the mother's name? I don't either. So I don't know of any place in in the Old Testament where it gives us the name of the mother. In fact, Isaiah is known for giving us very little information about his personal life. Not necessarily that he is a tinfoil hat type person, um, but that just that that's not the focus of the ministry and the person of Isaiah. So Father is given in Amos um, is Isaiah chapter one um, verse one. I don't know of anywhere where it talks about his mother. Was Isaiah married? You don't think he was? Well, so if you turn to chapter 8, and in chapter 8 and verse 3... Um, we get just a shred, just a little, little speck of information about a wife. It says in chapter 3, this is Isaiah, he is speaking, and he's speaking on behalf of God, but he gives a little uh, personal information right there in chapter 8 and verse 3, and it says, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. What can we imply from that? We can imply that he was married to a prophetess. Now, it doesn't say the prophetess was my wife and her name was Mary. It doesn't really give us a name. It just refers to, alludes to that Isaiah went to the prophetess. She conceived and bore him a son. Then it says there going on in verse 3, Then the Lord said to me, Call his name How'd you like to have that name? Why don't you have that like Tiki Tiki Timbo, No Side Rimbo, right? You have kind of one of those names? All right, so named him Mayor Salah Hashbaz. You may say, well, I don't think that's how they pronounce it. I don't, you don't know the difference. I don't know the difference, okay? Your pronunciation is just as valid as my pronunciation, all right? So we infer, and I, and I want to say infer, and I want to stress infer, because I can't necessarily say that it doesn't, I mean, he doesn't say, hey, her name was Mary, and this is my wife, and this is when we got married. Um, it just alludes to that if he's going to have a son, he went to the prophetess. So we assume, most Bible commentators will assume that he was married, that he was married to a woman, a prophetess there in the feminine, um, but we really don't have any information about who she was as far as her name, where she came from, her parents, her lineage. We don't have any information except for the description there in verse 8 or chapter 8 and verse 3 that she was a prophetess. And then elsewhere in scripture, we don't have really any other indication about his wife. You think back to Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel, at the first part of Ezekiel, talks about being married. And then you get down to, I think it's about Ezekiel 14. Don't quote me on that. But Ezekiel about, about 14 is where the, word, the God said, hey, at sundown, your wife is going to die. And then she does die. Um, so very explicitly says, your wife. So if you are the kind that says, well, Spence, I don't think that was his wife. You are free. Um, we, are, we are free to have a variety of opinions in the room. It just tells us in chapter 8 and verse 3 that he um, bore or that he conceived a son through the prophetess. So we can say why. We can say, um, yeah, however else you want to define it as, describe it as, all right? So father, mother, potentially maybe a wife, children. Okay, he's got the one son. Chapter 8, verse 3, does it, does it mention any other children? Mm-hmm. 
Chapter 7 and verse 3. Chapter 7. Why am I doing all your homework for you, Miss Carol? You're cheating off me. That's what you're doing. All right. So chapter 7 and verse 3, um, Isaiah gets ready to go to Ahaz, um, which is one of the kings. Remember where Ahaz was in the lineage of Hezekiah? You might remember? Extra credit? Extra credit? Huh? This is dad. That's right. Ah, oh, Pete's got extra credit, okay? So uh, Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, who we were talking about last week. Alright, so there in chapter 7, Ahaz, or Isaiah is getting ready to go to Ahaz, and it says in verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to me, Ahaz, you and Shear, Joshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Translation, we think, um, based upon this, based upon chapter 8, verse 3, um, that he was potentially married and he had two sons. Um, the first son being mentioned in chapter, or the first son being mentioned here, we really don't know the age or where, they at, or where they're at in birth order, but the first son being here in chapter 7 and verse 3, and the next mention of the son in chapter 8, verse 3, and because they're different names, we just assume that he potentially had at least two sons. He could have had more children, could have had some daughters, could have had some more sons, but we don't have anything in Scripture that describes anything about it. Um, you could even go, if you started looking at different biblical um, studies, helps. Um, there's even some commentators that will write on the names of each one of the sons and how the names of the sons was applicable to the situation that, is, that Isaiah was prophesying to. And similar to like if you go to the book of Hosea and whenever Hosea goes and has the children with Gomer and God says call this child and this name because there is a message to the people through the name of the child. So there's biblical, there's, there's commentators, Bible scholars that will go and say well the one son of Isaiah, his name means this and the other one means this and this side applies. I don't bring that in because um, I've been in a lot of gas stations that will have a name, and it means X, Y, Z, and I go 30 miles down the road to the next gas station, and the same name has a different meaning. I don't know where we get that from as far as where the authority is on what names mean, but I don't have it in Scripture all the time that this name means this, and so I really hesitate in leaving it, because I'm convinced there's somebody somewhere that just says, hey, let's let's come up with a meaning for the name Ann, and they, so they say, hey, it means Ann, and they put it on a pocket knife, or they put it on a little placard, or they put it on something. Um, we got to be careful. We got to be careful about buying into some of the, the scholars' um, hypotheticals. Right? I think God would tell us if we want, He wanted us to know. I think He would too. But so, but I can I can look up what does Spence mean, and the interweb will give me some definition. It might be a very handsome, smart, funny guy, and maybe something like that, and maybe the the exact opposite. I'm not sure, or it could be somewhere in between. But I'm convinced if I go to the interweb, it'll give me a definition. But. But it doesn't mean it's from God because it's from the internet. Right, right, right. It could be just I made it up. Yes, that too. I can believe it. So sometimes, so if you go home tonight and you're studying on this and you think, well, why did Spence not talk about the names of the two sons or the meanings of the names of the two sons? It's just I hesitate in bringing too much of the extra biblical stuff just because we don't have it given to us in chapter and verse. All right, so father, mother, Potential wife, two boys. What else do we know about him? Vocation? Do we know what his vocation was? Yes, sir. Yes, so I, I saw a lot of that same stuff, Mr. Allen. I just, my hesitation is, is that sometimes those are study notes, and I think, well, somebody, you know, somebody wrote the study notes, and I, I don't, how much do you lean on that? I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if, I mean, is the Old Testament written in Hebrew, is that correct, and the New Testament's in Greek? 99% of the Old Testament is Hebrew. There's some stuff in Daniel that's written in Aramaic, but the majority of it. it's something you could look up in that language, maybe, if it would give more of a definition? Probably, probably yeah. It might have something there. Yeah. Maybe. Could be. Yeah. So do you know his vocation? Okay, so chapter 6, verse 9. 
kind of gives us an idea of what his vocation was. Um, that he was called by God to go be a prophet to the people. Now, um, you'll see in other places where they had a, a previous profession before God called them. We really don't know much about Isaiah, but we do know that he was called by God specifically to go to the people. Do we know which group of people he was sent primarily to? Remember, we have the ten northern tribes known as Israel. You have the two southern tribes known as Judah. Do we have any idea of which group he was primarily focused on? Judah. Judah. Why do we know that? Um, names of the kings. Okay, the names of the kings. Or back in chapter 1 and verse 1, Harold, it tells us that he was a prophet um, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it says right there, it just kind of gives us the key of they. Hey, this is who I am. This is where I was. And then, like you mentioned there, Harold, it says in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Does anybody remember what span of years we are talking about? Excuse me? A little bit more than that. A little bit more than that. Now what will skip, what will trip you up is, is that there's a period where Uzziah and Jotham were ruling as co-regents. So if you go back chronologically in the Kings and the Chronicles, you will see where Uzziah reigned for 50 years. And you will look back and say where Jotham was at. Well, there was a period of time they were ruling at the same time, the same way that Ahaz and Hezekiah. There's a little bit of overlap in their ruling. So Uzziah came to the throne in 787 BC. Hezekiah left the throne at 697 BC. So there's about a 90 year span. Now people have tried to guess, alright, so how long did Isaiah prophesy for? So did he prophesy for the full 90 years or for some other period of time? Well, if you go to Isaiah chapter 6, it'll tell us that Isaiah, as he is giving us the, the vision that he had of God, it says in chapter 6 in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there will be some people that will go, okay, so we know this span of time is 90 years. We do know that Uzziah ruled for 50 years. So if Isaiah started his earthly ministry at year 50, that would put about 40 years give or take some. Alright? So, 40 years is a is a pretty solid bet because we do know from 2 Kings that um, Isaiah and Hezekiah kind of went off in the sunset together. But then some people, of course, this, you, you can always find a Bible scholar out there that has a different opinion. Alright? So there's other ones that will sit there and say, well, Isaiah was already ministering before the death of Uzziah. And so some people have said 60 years. Some people have said 50 years. Some people have said 40 years. There's a whole span there. But we do know that for sure, Isaiah 6 and verse 1, he got called for sure the year that Uzziah died. And we can, we can plot that historically because we know where that happened in real time. Really it took place historically. And then we can plot it from there. So we realize that he had a ministry that spanned multiple rulers. And he primarily interacted with Ahaz and Hezekiah because those are the two um, that were ruling the majority of his ministry. Anything else that we might know about him trivia-wise? That people rejected him. Okay, where do we get that from? Uh, six, nine. Six, nine? Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you referring to where he says, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep yes. on seeing but do not perceive? Okay. Good. Any other place? Wasn't he the the wasn't he one that didn't see any fruits or anything that he had done? So I don't know of any place where he saw people repent. Yes. I, I don't know of a place. Now, I'm, I don't have it all memorized, but I don't know of a place where he prophesied, thus saith the Lord, and everybody was like, you're right, we're sorry. You know, I don't, I don't know of any place they did that. Yeah. 
50 years and no decision. 40 years. Yeah, 40 years. We'll go 40. 40 years, no decision. 40 years, no response. 40 years, nothing but... That's nice. Okay? So what are some things that stick out? Maybe some significant things. Why do we know about Isaiah? Why is he somebody that we are familiar with? Prophesied about Jesus. Prophesied about Jesus? Where do we see that at? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you're right. Partially. You're right. Partially. Okay. So Isaiah is credited with writing. Um, obviously, the, the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. I've already said it was 66 books. Um, a lot of people have called it the little Bible. Because if you go to the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of elements that take it. How many books are in the Bible in general? 66. So they will bring parallels to where you're at um, in the book of Isaiah to the book to the entire Bible. Chapter 1 through chapter 39 he talks about the Assyrian threat, the people's rebellion. Chapter 40 through 55 he talks about the Babylonian exile. And then chapter 56 through 66 he talks about the things yet to come. And so um, he is heavily leaned upon in our understanding of the Old Testament, especially our understanding of God. Isaiah, do what? Is that chapter 9 and verse 6 is where he talks about Jesus? Yes, it does. So, I was waiting for Harold. I figured Harold was going to get there. I did. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was waiting also, yes, chapter 7. Yes, chapter 7, verse 14. That's right. That's right. 9 what? 9-6. So when you come to the book of Isaiah, it is the most, or the second, sorry, the second most quoted book in the New Testament. Anybody remember the first most quoted book in the New Testament? So there, see, I knew Charles would come through. I knew. All right, so Psalm, the Psalms, okay. So uh, the Psalms are quoted 79 different times in the New Testament. And then on the heels of that, the second most quoted is the book of Isaiah. Any ideas on how many times it's quoted in the New Testament? <coughs> This is kind of weird. 66. 66. So it's quoted 66 times. Now I'm thinking like, well, that's kind of, that's kind of, I mean, you could say, you could get tenfold haddish, right? And you could say, well, yeah, but numer- what is it? Numerology is the study of numbers and how they all fit together. I mean, you can go to seed on that. 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible is quoted 66 times. He lived for 66 years. I mean, you could just do whatever you wanted to, right? On that. So we do know, why do we know about Isaiah? Is because his prophetic contribution. Um, God called him. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. God would come and say, speak to the people, blah, 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 blah. And Isaiah would go to the people and he would say, blah, 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 blah. He would do exactly what he is doing. He was going to Judah and Jerusalem, the two southern tribes. Um, didn't go to the ten northern tribes. And does anybody remember why not? God told him not to. That's right. They were they were gone. <laughs> they were not there to go to, right? So the Assyrians had already come in and captured them. Remember the year that Assyrian came in and captured the ten northern tribes? <coughs> Come on, Charles. Come on, Charles. Come on, Charles. Come on, come on. 722 B.C. is when the Assyrians come in and they capture the ten northern tribes. And those that is considered the ten forgotten tribes. And so when Isaiah comes on the scene, there is no Israel north. That is all Syrian uh, Assyria land. So that's why he doesn't go to them. So we have this whole 66 chapters where he gives us this prophetic contribution saying this is what the Lord said. But then if you go back to Isaiah chapter 1... I think it's important to think about what he was addressing, what he was speaking to, because not only do we have the example of just his prophetic contribution, but we also have the example of a testimony, an example of how God used him. Uh, as Matt said, I don't know of any place where it talks about that he gave an invitation and they just came down and, and filled the front of the church in the droves. And yet, listen to what he is confronting them about. It says back up there in chapter 1 and verse 2, um, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And this is what the Lord is speaking to the two tribes, or what is it, the, the, the people that are known of Judah. 
children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that is, in a summary, what the majority of Isaiah is about. is God coming to the people and saying, I've warned you that your sin has consequences. I've warned you about what your sin does to your relationship with your Creator. I have warned you. And then you got to have a front row seat to see then what God does in His judgment upon sin and what happened to the ten northern tribes. And instead of you looking at that going, hmm, I better not mess with that anymore. I better repent, turn back to God. You still have kept doing dumb stuff. So this is kind of like a a microcosm in him saying, this is what you're doing. And you may say, well, that could be very ambiguous. That could be very vague. So then go to chapter (coughs) 5. Chapter 5 and verse 20, Isaiah gets even more specific about what they're doing. What is it that God's taking objection to? What is it that God is not pleased with? What is what God? What is it that God is um, opposing? Isaiah five and verse twenty. It says, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his." Right. He says there's this whole season of life where they're turning it around. And it's not that God is changing the standard. It's not that God is changing the rules. It's that man has stopped listening to God and they're more consumed with listening to man. And there's so many parallels to where Isaiah is speaking to the people. And you can read, so is Wellston, Oklahoma. So is United States 2023. So is the church. And I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about the church as far as all the redeemed. So is the church living like today. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on Anthony. I mean, but just this last week, I mean, the Pope comes out and says, you can bless same-sex unions. Now, he doesn't say that they can perform the ceremony, but he says that they can issue a blessing, which in the Catholic Church is a huge monumental thing. Now, they came out in a 5,000-page report trying to say, well, nothing changes from yesterday to now. Well, if it takes you 5,000 pages to say that nothing changes, there's something that's changing. (laughs) Okay? They did not put 5,000 pages just to do nothing. But this is a huge monumental shift. A shift in which direction? A shift to the left. A shift to uh, shift S-H-I-F-T if I'm not enunciating correctly. A shift to liberalism. And that is just another step in what we have seen. Um, Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Methodist Church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Christian Church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Episcopal Church. um, And even those that claim to be brothers and sisters of Christ in the Unitarians. I mean, they have all they have all started walking to the left. And in so doing, they are calling evil good and good evil. That is not me being judgmental. That is not being hard, me being hard-nosed or narrow-minded. That is just saying what God says. So Isaiah comes on the scene and he doesn't say, hey, let me check the winds of popular opinion. He just simply comes and says, this is the issue. God has given you His standards and instead of you following His standards, you are saying, well, what is man's standards? And then you're ignoring the standards of God. But that doesn't stop Isaiah from speaking truth. Now that's where I'm... That's where I'm no, how do we speak truth to these people? Well, that's a challenge for me, Miss Carol, is how to thread that being a truth speaker, but also doing it with a tender heart and being loving. They don't want to hear they don't want to hear, but much, but, but even before, if they want to hear or not, how do I say it in a God-honoring way? 
So, so you reject them, though? Do I reject them? Yeah. I don't think you reject them. Yeah. Um, we don't have any example from Isaiah where he rejected them. He just kept saying the same thing. He kept speaking the same truth. Even when it wasn't popular, he said, Thus saith the Lord. And he could do that because he knew, one, what was God saying, but then number two, he could do that because he had the moral authority to speak because he was living what he was speaking. And that is where I struggle mightily is if I come to you and say, oh, Miss Carol, you shouldn't do that. And then you look at me and go, well, you do it too. Well, now I've given up any kind of moral authority to say anything because now I am just as guilty. And I think that is one of the ploys of Satan right now is he gets you and I so dabbling in all of the regular sins of this world that we don't feel like we have any ground to stand on to, ex- to exhort anyone else to stop doing it. Well, how do we? How do we? How you see it. And you want to say something, but you know they'll attack you. So we see this in Scripture, especially more so in Jeremiah, where he was attacked. But that didn't mean that it stopped him. And we see even through um, the early centuries of the early church, 300, 400, 500, 600, even when you get to the, the, the time where the Fox's Book of Martyrs was written, and you see men and women being attacked for their boldness to stand for Jesus. And then you get to this season where everybody is um, in favor or sympathetic or kind. Um, There's a guy named Aaron Wren, and he's writing about that we're in three different seasons of a culture that we uh, you have a positive, a a neutral, and a negative. And so 100 years ago, we were in a positive where people thought Christianity was a good thing, and people um, encouraged Christianity, and they embraced Christianity. And it's almost like they wanted to legislate Christianity, and then we moved to a neutral society where they were um, could take or leave it. They really didn't have a concern. And he said, now we are shifting historically to a negative society where the church is now considered to be an enemy of the culture. And that what he's trying to say is to be ready because in the coming decades, we are going to continue to live in that negative culture where the church will continually be the enemy of the culture, whereas where you and I, the best thing that I can encourage you to do is to know what this says, so when you're challenged, you know what God's Word says. Yes, sir? Can I just make a comment? Please, please, please. There were, and I don't know if you're talking about like what you do, yeah, personally, um, but I think it's important to make sure that you do it coming from a place of love and not aggression. Absolutely. Um, because that will turn people off so fast. There were times, so many nights that we spent flying away, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning where she was talking to me about, you know, why did Tabby do this or why did we talk about Baptist do this? You know, and it's just, it might take a long time, but make sure you always do it from a place of love and nothing else. Right. I sure. think that's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot lately in our household with our kids. Um, you know, we're, right now, we're in a world where we're facing things that I don't think that any of us expected. Regardless of, you know, being born in the 80s or being born in the 50s, you know, or wherever you were born. I don't, there's a lot that we're facing right now that's wild. Um, and one of the things that we've encouraged our oldest and what I'll continue to encourage my kids to do is, listen, at the end of the day, all we can do is show our friends and our family and our neighbors God through how we behave and how we love on them. And if we don't agree with them, that's not our place. We love on them, and maybe them seeing who we are as Christians will bring them to God. Um, leave, the, leave the fighting and the swinging hammers and all of that to someone else. <laughs> um, and I think right now there's a lot of people that are ready to just go and go fight and be martyrs for 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 the church and, and that's good and great, but you, you have to be a professional to be martyr, right. right? You gotta know your stuff or yeah. you don't do it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Give us a bad name. <laughs> yeah. What were you gonna say, Miss Amber? Uh, I was just wondering on this topic of you know bringing up things that people don't want to hear. 
How does in the New Testament, when it talks about, maybe it doesn't even mean having anything to do with that, but casting your pearls before swine, where exactly does that tie into, or does it have anything to do with, you know, moving on to people that would hear? Or is that something completely different? Well, I, I, I think there's relevancy that you could connect the two. Um, I think what... With Isaiah, you know, he was called by God and said, go be consistent. Go and speak, go and speak, and go and speak. I think the pearls before swine, Jesus was saying, hey, be careful that there will be some people that will listen and be some people that won't listen. And so there may be some opportunities you have that might be um, a better use of your time or a better use of your resources. So I would say that in that instance, you know, he's just saying, hey, be spiritually discerning about the environment, the situation you're in. And sometimes, I mean... You'd be better off moving in a different direction than pursuing. I, for me, I get awfully hard-headed. And when I get an idea in my head, um, I get stubborn. And by golly, you're going to listen to me um, even if we got to sit here. And so I think for me personally, sometimes you got to think, well, Spence, is that where the Spirit is leading you? Or is that where you are leading you? And so I would say there would be a little difference because, you know, God is saying to Isaiah, hey, you do this. But I do think in the New Testament sense, we do need to be discerning. There are conversations that God says, hey, not right now, maybe later. Move off in a different direction. And I think sometimes, though, we just get, no, we're going to do this. And I think that would be an instance where it would be like a, a pearls before swine, where we're just... Wasting those opportunities because we're acting of our own will instead of under the direction of the Spirit. So, so one of the things that Isaiah does, he just continues to be consistent. All throughout the 66 chapters, you see a consistency. I think one of those things that helps you and I in our testimony and our witness in front of the people is consistency. Consistency, consistency. And that is where Satan is always trying to erode into our lives. We can spend 10 years building a witness and a testimony and wreck it in 10 minutes. It's one of those things that we, it, it, there's always that susceptibility. So um, when Isaiah comes on the scene, not only does he confront sin, he identifies what the sin is, but then he continues to be focused on God. Um, I'm not going to turn there, but you can go to like Isaiah chapter 40, and uh, that was the source material for a song, Behold Our God, that was put out by Sovereign Grace a number of years ago. But it's the idea that, it, that as Isaiah is speaking to the tribe of Judah, he is saying... Part of the reason why you are so susceptible to sin and temptations and dangers is because you're not focused on God. You're focused on a thousand other things but not focused on God. And sometimes the most restorative, sometimes the most healthy, sometimes the most helpful thing in the Christian life is just to stop, stop, and fixate yourself on God. Think about God. Focus on God. Rest in God. Meditate on God. And that was one of the things that Isaiah um, makes a point to say. Think about God. Um, and, and, and how many times you and I get so caught up in the pace. The constant pace. If you got smaller children, you get them to bed. Then you got stuff you got to catch up on before you pass out and fall in bed. And then, really, the only time you have any quiet time is before they get up. <laughs> then the alarm clock goes off, and you're like, not this morning. <laughs> and then when they're up, it's game on. You don't get to control the pace. I mean, well, you get to control it to some. I mean, but I mean, there's just there's a rhythm there, and there's a hecticness there. And, and sometimes we can get so caught up that we stop fixating, stop thinking, stop looking upon God. So Isaiah says, "Listen, part of the reason why where you're at is because you stopped contemplating. You stopped fixating yourself on God." So he he's giving them this. Um, He's identifying sin. He's warning them of sin. He tells them in chapter 5, this is the judgment for your sin. Um, Chapter 7, and then what Harold referred to in chapter 9, he gives them hope. Yes, you have sin, but there is hope 
on the way. He says in chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So it's not that Isaiah comes in and says, Oh, your life is terrible and it's only going to get worse and no hope for you. He comes in and says, This is your sin. This is the judgment of God. But this is the hope that God is leaving you with. What a blessing it is that we have hope. There's a lot of hopeless things in this world. 66 between Luther and Arcadia right now is rather hopeless. It's a hopeless, barren wasteland. There's just certain things in this world that are just hopeless. And yet when we come to the things of God, we continually are reminded that God says, yes, you have sinned. Yes, there is judgment for your sin, but I'm not going to leave you there. I will give you hope in my son, Jesus. You're supposed to focus on 66. It is going to get better, and then it's going to be really nice. It's going to get better someday. Yeah, Yeah, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get way worse. And Montana keeps charging me more and more money to take his road. So, believe me. Are there any lessons that stick out to you that Isaiah gives us in Scripture? Consistency. Do what, ma'am? Consistency. Consistency? Oh, listen to her. Okay. So he talks about, so he gives us a lesson of consistency. I mean, you think for 40 years, he stayed faithful. 50. 50 years, 66 years. For for however many years, he stayed faithful. For however many years, he got up and he did what God told him. He did the next thing that God told him to do. He continued to say the same message that God had told him. And he continued that consistency. So when people thought, I'm in trouble, I need a word for the Lord, where did they go? They went to Isaiah. You can go back to 2 Kings. And when Hezekiah got in a bind, because here comes Sennacherib from Assyria and says, we're going to beat you up and take your toys, what did Hezekiah do? Hezekiah says, I need to hear from God. I know who to go talk to. I'm going to go talk to Isaiah. And that might be that your consistency is such that whenever a friend, a loved one, a co-worker, someone else, years down the road, finds themselves in a bind, your consistency will have opened a door for them to come to you. What's another lesson? One of the things that I've noticed about Isaiah is that it seems like his messages come from a place of love. Like, they're a lot like, you know, Simon Peter's known for being like rough and gruff, he's going to fight everybody. And, you know, um, there's so many people that, like I said earlier, are ready to fight. And it seems like he's he's teaching through a place of love. And um, there's no yelling, throwing sticks or stones, right? It's just. Well, he's he's grieved. Yeah. He's he's truly burdened with the condition of their sin and the future of their sin. I mean, he truly is um, <clears throat> sympathetic. I mean, he he's saying, I I have a great burden because of your guilt before God. Mm-hmm. That's something that you know we can't just teach. That's not something that you can just hand out in a pill. I mean, that idea where you truly have a heart for sinners headed to hell is not something that is just simply manufactured. It's whenever you see the need, you see the lostness. And when your heart becomes burdened and your heart becomes um, just weighed down by the need that's out there, and you just say, I've got no choice but to go to them. Um, you know, you hear people talk about going to the, you know, to the children's hospital and you see uh, the, the children and all the challenges and you get in there and your, your heart is just heavy and your heart is just weighed down because of their conditions. Not because of your condition, but you can see their condition. Um, you know, in the same way, it's very easy for you and I in our Christianity to become calloused and indifferent to the state of lostness. Or to become jaded and now we are cynical and dismissive. That, that burden that Isaiah says, my heart is heavy because of the state of their eternities. 
God is always in control. God is in control, but when was the last time that I cried because of a person I know is going to hell without Jesus? When was the last time I was emotional on God, please save them? We miss that. What other lessons? I think he was very straightforward and what was going to happen in the sense that when, when Hezekiah let the envoys from Babylon come in, he says, okay, you messed up. This is what's going to happen because of this. You guys are going to get turned over to the king of Babylon. Right. It's just just the, the flat out honesty. Yes. The frankness, the honesty, and then just the insightfulness to say, you sin, God's going to hold you accountable, and this will be the consequence. Yeah. That's right. right. I've heard that somewhere before. (laughs) What else? I always look at how steadfast he was. During the whole time, he stayed steadfast. Right. I mean... This is so hard to go that long and not see any fruit from what you're doing. And day in and day out, to get up and keep staying steadfast. Yeah. Obedience. Obedience. Yeah. Well, there's something I want you to see. Um, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 1, you know, he, he talks about the sin, how the sin separates us. Um, Isaiah one eighteen, come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He talks about the, the reconciliation that comes through repentance. And there's two other places that just stick out to me as a lesson from Isaiah. Um, the first one being in Isaiah chapter 55 of God's mercy. Um, he says in chapter eight, or chapter 55 and verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then he goes down in verse 11, and he says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, that, that passage in there is Jesus, or the God saying through the mouth of Isaiah, I have compassion on those that are submissive. I have compassion on those that turn to me. I have compassion on these people, which is why I'm going to send Jesus. Which is why I sent prophet to warn them and warn them and warn them. Which is why I delayed judgment and I gave them every opportunity to repent. Because I have compassion for my people. And there were some people in that time that thought, well, you know what? God may have compassion for us, but He has no power to save us either from the Assyrians or later from the Babylonians. So you get to Isaiah 59 and he reminds us chapter 55 he talks about the mercy of God and now in chapter 59 he talks about the ability of God. Behold, this is verse 1 of chapter 59. Behold, the the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is is ear dull that it cannot hear. God says through the mouth of Isaiah, the fact that you are not being rescued or saved from your predicament is not because God can't reach you, His hand, He he just can't get close enough, or because He doesn't hear you, or because He's not able. It's not the fact that God doesn't have the ability. What is the division? What is the separation? Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you. So that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. And your tongue mutters wickedness. He says it's not the fact that God isn't able to care for you, save you, or deliver you. Many times it's you and I have behaved ourselves into a situation that we now expect God to come and rescue us from. And God says, I can come and rescue you, but you're going to have to repent of your situation first. Sometimes we get that backwards. 
Sometimes we behave ourselves into a condition and then we expect for God to come in and rescue us and we say, God, if you will rescue me, then I will repent. We don't see that example in Scripture. We behave our way into the wrath and judgment of God, then we repent of our ways, and then God shows mercy and grace to us. Not behave myself into a situation, God come save me, and then I repent. Why is that order specific? Because in our humanity, if that's the way it worked, I behaved myself into a situation, God saves me, what will I do? Do it again. I'll go right back to that same situation again. Which is why we have so many issues with substance abuse treatments in the world today. Because we get the order of things out. Somebody finds themselves behaved into a situation. They ask for help. We rush in to help them. But there hasn't been a change of heart or a change of mind or a true repentance. We bring them out and they do better and they go right back. Because they've never changed themselves. Um, down there in Hilton, right there in Wilson, Oklahoma, just a few miles away, there was a, work, a DOC work center. And so there were people there um, that I worked with on the daily basis that were inmates. They would get delivered to the shop in the morning. We'd work all day long. They'd come back and pick them up, and they'd go back to the work center that night. And the majority of them were in for some type of a drug-related offense. And, and I'm sitting there talking to them. Okay, so what's made the difference between you staying right and that person acting right than just go right back to it. And they overwhelmingly told me it was because they changed in here. And that changing this is not going to change anything. You've got to change this. So we've got to change our stinking thinking. We've got to change our stinking thinking, which is what Romans 12 2 talks about. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, so many times you and I start to think, God, where are you? I need help. I need help. And maybe God is saying, you haven't gotten to the point that you've repented of your behavior that got you in there. So maybe you need to stay in there for a little while before you realize, hey, I need to repent. And you repent and then God comes in. Does that make sense? So So he says, hey, God is merciful and God is able to save. Sometimes the reason why we don't see God doing what he's doing because we haven't Repented. Which kind of makes me wonder what is it going to take to get our culture to repent now? So our repentance needs repentance. Our repentance just needs to be authentic. I mean, we think about, well, what is it going to take? I mean, well, a natural disaster, that will do it. It hasn't. Maybe a violent attack. That'll do it. It hasn't. Maybe a, a uh, invisible disease that wrecks the body. That hasn't. What about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think, that, I think that's better than what we've got. But I'm just saying that, you know, at some point we have to ask ourselves, what's it going to take for this culture to repent? And then, yeah, but they got to be ready to accept the Holy Spirit. Well, they got to be ready, but we got to ask ourselves first, what is it going to take for me to repent? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So going back to what you were um, talking about with the substance abuse, or substance abuse and things like that, do you think that we as a church are maybe enabling people, um, you know, whenever, I, you know, there are times when things like natural disasters happen or death happens and we're so quick to jump in and say let me help you and because that's what we feel like we're called to do do you think that maybe we're part of the problem honestly so in the study I've got a shelf that is just books that I like to give away and one of the books and I've got two of them on the shelf right now that I would love to give away if somebody will read it is a book called When Helping Hurts And the premise of the book is that there are some times, and I'm not talking about just a church, I'm talking about individual societies, where we think that we are helping, but we're actually doing more damage because we're enabling. So, yes, 
I think there are instances where we have hurt more than we've helped. I think we've been well-intentioned, and I think that we've had pure motives. I just don't think that we have thought through all of the scenarios that come, and we haven't thought through the ramifications of where that leads to. Um, And it, it talks a lot in that book about how we need to be careful when it comes to compassion ministries of are we actually helping or are we actually enabling and actually doing more harm? Yeah. So many churches today are more conforming to the ways of the world than actually standing out and making a difference. You know, a lot of churches are not bashing on mega churches, but you know, the cons like the. I don't want to go too deep in that, but you know, just just the ways of the world bringing superstars in and trying to bring crowds. It's not about Jesus anymore. Right. It's about other things that you know. Where's our witness when we're just. We don't look no different than the world. Sure. And it is easy to get focused on entertainment and focused on ear tickling. I mean, those are, you draw a crowd. And. You know, that's just like the United States has always been on Israel's side. Yes, ma'am. And we're having people talk out against this. We're supposed to, should start going against Israel. And that's where things start going back. When you start going against Israel, Look how things we've had. You know, the bombings and everything we've had so much. That ought to be telling people something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so I've got I've got some more assignments to do for school, and then I want to I want to I, I had this thought that came through my head the other day because I was listening to the report about the president of Harvard and how they would not, she would not denounce the um, anti-Semitic attacks that are happening on the, camp, the campus of Harvard. And which I had a thought in my head. Some of you may already have already gone down this rabbit trail and you can already he, uh, head me off the path. But I had this thought in my head that it seems like every generation of Jews has to face a time of purification and trial. And we think historically, this generation right now, there hasn't been a time of trial to this point, and could it be that this is this generational time of testing? Now, that is completely just a random thought that I really want to go back and dig through and to say, is there something there? Just because I'm now, now I'm curious about it. But yes, when we, we talk about hearing all this stuff, but we talk about these things. But then we start thinking about historically. I mean, it seems like every generation there was some challenge that that generation of Jews had to face to question them, or, or, and of course this. This is suspense. This is suspense. Could it be that there is another knock on the door that Jesus is saying, you got me wrong. You missed me. Maybe this is another wake-up call, whether they'll take it or not. I don't know. Doesn't the Bible say about, or God says, if you curse them, you will be cursed. Speaking of Israel, and I will Speaking of His chosen people, yes. 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 Absolutely. So, anyways, I just I've got this I got this like lingering thought over there that I want to I want to go chase. It's going to take me a little while though, so I got to get some other assignments done. Anyway, any other lessons that we think about the life of Isaiah sticks out to you? <laughs> All right. So he knew these people. He did. There's a lot to be said. You <laughs> made me on rabbit trail. I love to read and focus in on how Jesus connected with people. There's a lot about that connection and having those hard conversations or what we perceive are going to be hard conversations. But having had one of those with someone I'm very, very close to and love deeply, they pursued me about it. I did not pursue them. And I never probably felt like I let the Lord speak through me more than I did in that situation because of my relationship. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Relationship and knowing people. And the conversations are harder when it's me versus you. And that's so easy for it to become a me versus you instead of a this is what God's word says. This is what I'm concerned. And we hold each other up to the standard of God's word. 
so many times it is, well, let me tell you what you're doing wrong and compare you back to me or compare you to Amber or compare you to Stacy or compare you to someone else. That's, that's a dead end. Comparing you to someone else. And it's a dead end to come in and say, well, I don't think you're doing right. But when you and I can come together and we both, you know, candle our lives based upon the word and the standard of God, then that's much more effective. But that's why we have to be consistent. Yeah. It's not always easy. You would be surprised too, maybe not you, but in general, um, that little bit of uh, personal, uh, uh, not weakness, but candidness, you know, will go a long way. Yes. To, to, for people to be like, Christians aren't perfect. <laughs> no. Right. Know. That's right. We wouldn't have need Jesus if we were perfect. Exactly. That's right. That's right. I'm glad you all are here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Mr. Pete, would you close us in a word of prayer? And we'll go home. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.